Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. Today it's just me. I thought I would talk about a movie I just saw yesterday called Thanks for Sharing, and I thought it was worthy to talk about on today's episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about sex addiction, recovery, 12-step groups, this sort of thing. So get ready for that. So a question for you out there is, what is it really like to be a sex addict and in recovery? What is it really like? That's what I'm going to talk about in this episode. First off, a little bit about the movie. It came out in 2012. It stars Mark Ruffalo, Tim Robbins, Gwyneth Paltrow, Alicia Moore, otherwise known as Pink. It's basically about four different sex addicts in recovery for sex addiction, and they attend Sex Addiction Anonymous and their old pals. In fact, Tim Rob- the Tim Robbins character is Mark Ruffalo's sponsor. And then it's also about two other sex addicts who are in early recovery. It's kind of a comedy, and it's also kind of a drama. It's, it's a lot lighter than I thought it was going to be. Oh, by the way, so the title, Thanks for Sharing, is in reference to when you share in 12-step groups, people will say, thanks for sharing. And so it's, it's a reference to that. I thought the movie was going to be raunchy and depressing to some extent, and it's really not. It's definitely a comedy. It's definitely lighthearted for most of the movie. There are difficult moments to watch, but it's not like 12 Years a Slave or something. It's, it's definitely lighthearted. But it, it deals with a very difficult issue in a very real way. There was really never a point in the movie where I thought to myself, oh, man, this is ridiculous which is pretty hard to do since I'm a skeptical person and frequently think thoughts like that when I'm watching movies. So uh, I thought it was fairly accurate, and they definitely did their research on 12-step groups and on sex addiction. It's interesting because another movie that came out recently about sex addiction was called Shame, and it had Michael Fassbender in it or Fassbender. I don't know if it is it Fassbender or Fassbender. I want to say Fassbender because when I, when I say Fassbender, when people say Fassbender, because it's F-A, I think, F-A-S-S, Fassbender sounds too uppity or something. It's like, it's not Michael Fassbender. It's Michael Fassbender. I don't, I don't know. I just don't like, call it, but maybe his name is Fassbender. What do I know? Anyway, back to thanks for sharing. So I thought I would just read from my notes and because, you know, doesn't everyone take notes when they watch movies? Isn't that what everyone does? So I'm just going to refer to the characters by their actor's name so you can picture them in your mind. So remember, Tim Robbins, Mark Ruffalo, and Gwyneth Paltrow. So first off, I want to just have a little bit of a rant on the word addiction. We have a lot of definitions for addiction, and I won't go into them all right now, but just let it be known that there are many different ways to define addiction. And addiction is not a real thing. It's not like a diagnosis like a broken bone or cancer. Broken bones and cancer in the medical field are real things. You can actually find them physically. Addiction you cannot find physically. What we do in the world of psychology, in the the world of diagnosing people, is we take a collection of symptoms and then we define how many of those symptoms have to be endorsed in order for the label to be applied. And so it's a very squishy concept and there's a lot of culture that goes into it and a lot of judgment calls have to go into it. For instance, if you have a quote-unquote addiction, one of the criteria is that it has to interfere with your life somehow. Well, how do you define that? Is losing a job interfering with your life? Many people would say yes. Is having a hangover interfering with your life? Some people would say no. Some people would say yes. So the words and the definitions are all culturally bound and determined. And so I just want to say that up front. Basically, the word addiction and the concept of addiction is socially constructed. And a lot of different people have different definitions of it. And they're all right because there is no right answer to what is the definition of addiction. The second little rant I want to have up front is about 12-step groups. I am just, full disclosure, not a product of 12-step groups, so I don't have any bias in that direction. But I I am biased toward 12-step groups because as a therapist, I have worked closely with many people who have found a lot of benefit in 12-step groups. 
I have a specialty in working with people with addiction from various different kinds of addiction, whether it's heroin or alcohol or marijuana or cigarettes or, or sex or porn or gambling, these kinds of things. I have found that people have found a lot of help in 12-step groups. Now, 12-step groups are like AA, NA, Sex Addiction Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, this sort of thing. And one thing that's always boggled me is why people hate 12-step groups so much. There are a lot of people who hate them. <laughs> when you bring them up in conversation, it's not like bringing up, being, you know, like if I said, I'm a therapist, you know, one out of 10 people will say, oh, is it therapy for a bunch of quacks and crazies? at least in Seattle. But if you bring up the idea of 12-step groups in a group of 10 people, I would say at least half of them have a negative connotation with it. And it's just always boggled me because if when you really understand what 12-step groups are, it doesn't make a lot of sense to be such a hater. I'm just trying to figure out if there's something threatening about 12-step groups to people. Some t a lot of times people will be turned off by the religious aspect that is often attributed to 12-step groups like AA, which to, I could understand to some extent. I think just in my own hypothesis is that it's very foreign for Americans to be comfortable with being vulnerable. And it's very foreign for Americans to share feelings with strangers and to talk about their deep feelings with strangers. And I also think that it's very foreign and uncomfortable for Americans to talk with people of other social class. We like to think of ourselves as a classless society, but I hate to break it to you if you're one of those people. We definitely live in a class society. And one of the things about these 12-step groups is that they are sort of equalizing in this way, that anybody can come. You don't have to have a certain income to show up at, at these meetings so if you're upper middle class and you go to an NA meeting, there's a good chance that there will be a wide variety of class in that meeting. There will be people in the working class. There'll be people that are very poor and uneducated. And there'll be people that are very highly educated and very wealthy and everyone in between. And in our society, we don't like to intermingle like that. So we, we tend to gravitate toward people who are like us and particularly around class, the way that we talk and all that kind of stuff. And we often will judge people of other classes. And so that was just one of the things. It's just a classist issue. But, but also just being vulnerable, as I said. You know, Americans are socialized to be very independent, to not need, quote unquote, other people, and definitely not to talk about your feelings with random strangers. In fact, this is seen as a, as a very despicable thing. You know, they'll say, oh, that person, TMI, TMI, or that person is an oversharer. That person likes to talk about themselves all the time. And that's basically what 12-step groups are focused on, is people talking about themselves. So I think that that's another reason, potentially, hypothesis, that AA is vilified so much. I'll say that AA and 12-step groups, these, you know, they're not perfect, it's made up of real people with real problems. It's comprised of literally every sort of person from young to old, uh, you know, ranging from all the different types of people. <laughs> you know, it's not just the people that you normally hang out with. There are groups that are comprised of just elderly black men. There are groups that are comprised of mainly teenagers. There are groups that are mainly comprised of mothers, single mothers, and this sort of thing. Every sort of person you can think of goes to these meetings, whether you're a CEO or you're a, a McDonald's burger flipper, every sort of person goes to these meetings. And, and therefore, you know, if you're hanging out with all sorts of different people, there's a chance that some of the people in the group you're not going to like. And so sometimes that will turn people off to these groups. But there's no way to avoid bumping into people that you don't like. So, so, so one of the things clinically that I run into is someone is in early recovery and they're on the fence about actually recovering from whatever it is that they're addicted to. And I'll suggest that they go to AA or some sort of 12-step group and they'll resist. And I'll say, why are you resisting? Why don't you want to go? The, one of the first things they'll say is, well, it's, there's too much religion. There's too much God. They, they make you talk about God. And there is an element of that, honestly. There are 12-step groups that don't involve God, but they're not as popular, not because of the, of the 
non-God element, but just because they're not just as, they're just not as popular. They're just, they're just not as well known, not as established in the communities. But the, but what I say to people is, yeah, sure. There's a little bit of God. And sometimes there can be a lot of God if you want it to be. But if you don't want there to be a lot of God, then you don't have to. And actually in the movie, thanks for sharing. They talked a little bit about this. A sponsor played by Mark Ruffalo is like, well, you have to pray every day. And the sponsee was saying, I don't really believe in God. I'm kind of an atheist. And the sponsor said, well, you don't have to believe God is this, you know, bearded man in the sky. You can believe whatever you want to believe God is. And so it's a very open-ended God sort of thing. And some people will say, well, you definitely have to believe in a higher power. You have to believe in a God. Whereas other people will say, well, is it really a God you're talking to, or is it just a higher power within yourself that you're talking to? You know, and these are debates that people have had since the beginning of time. And as far as I know, in AA, most people have adopted, depending on the community, a very flexible idea of what God is. So, you know, some people might think, oh, does that mean I have to become a Christian? And I'm guessing in some communities, there is pressure to become a Christian, but in others, there there is not. And the other thing I'll say is that in AA, you're not required to do anything. That I think there's this idea that AA is like a class where you show up and there's, there's a teacher or a therapist that will dictate what what goes on. For those in the know, they know that that is definitely not the case. What, what, what AA is, is it is just a bunch of people in recovery. There's no one, there's no leader, there's no therapist, there's no, there's no professional. Everyone is on the same level. It just so happens that one person has been designated as the person who gets things going. They're the person who has volunteered for that role. They're, they're probably in later recovery and have decided that they want to give back to the community by quote unquote, leading a group, but they don't lead, they don't ask questions, they just get the ball rolling. And it's a very democratic situation. People are free to talk, or they're free to not talk. And there's no one lecturing, there's no one at the whiteboard telling you how to recover or telling you that you're a bad person for using, there's nothing like that. It's a very organic experience, really. Basically, I've been to to meetings basically for research and and as support for other people. And I've also been to Al-Anon meetings as as someone just personally because I have people in my life that are addicts or I have had people in my life who are addicts. And Al-Anon meetings are similar to AA meetings. Al-Anon meetings are for the loved ones of of addicts. And basically, it, it often starts off with some kind of togetherness, fellowship activity, like reading from a book or something. And then, but the, the main part of the meeting is where people start sharing and whoever wants to share just starts sharing. They just, they, they just talk and there's no crosstalk is what they call it. People don't respond directly to any person. So for instance, you know, Joe stands up and says, hello everyone. And I'm a sex addict and I have a lot of things to say today because I've been challenged and I'm really trying to stay sober and I'm really trying not to get back into the old habits. And, and I've had a bad day at work. And when I have a bad day at work, sometimes I get a craving, but I just know that if I just take one day at a time, things will be better. And thanks for letting me share. And then the next person talks and, and they, the next person doesn't respond to Joe. They just start on their own story. And what this does, the magic of this that I've seen happen with people is that it greatly increases individuals' ability to be sober. It greatly increases the motivation for sobriety. That's the main, as far as I'm concerned, mechanism of these meetings. Now you say, well, there's 12 steps in recovery. And as you go through the 12 steps, you you recover. And I think that that's another also useful thing. It's almost like self-help or therapy to some extent. But I think one of the main mechanisms, helpful mechanisms of these meetings is that anecdotally, when people walk into the meetings, if they're struggling with their commitment to sobriety, when they leave, they are much more committed to sobriety. You just see it in people's faces and you, you hear it in the way they talk. There's just something invigorating about listening to other people struggling with the exact same thing you're struggling with, but everyone is there trying to be sober. There's a, there's a, there's a congregational aspect to it. There's a reason why humans get together for things. You know, we get together for peace rallies. We get together for social justice movements. You know, the 99 percenters, we get together for funerals and to mourn people's deaths. We, we get together for school and we get together for church 
We get together for worship. There's a reason why we get together because it, it has an effect on the individual. And when you have 10, 20, 30 people get together dedicated to sobriety, it has an effect on the individual. And that, that is very helpful. When people try to get sober from whatever it is they're trying to recover from, on their own without going to any sort of congregational meeting, I have much less confidence in their ability to, to recover. We in our society value individualism. We, we value willpower. You know, you need to just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get her done. But the fact is, as research shows time and time again, that we do not have the ability to do that. Humans do not have the ability to exert willpower over a strong craving to do something and that we need a lot of different things in place in order to help us achieve whatever goal that we want to achieve. And one of those things that we put in place it involves meetings a lot of times. Anyway, can people recover without AA? Absolutely. If Or without 12-step groups, you know, can sex addicts refrain from their sexual acting out without going to groups? Absolutely. There are many people that do that. And all the more power to them. I, I I worked with a guy who quit using marijuana after being addicted to it for 20, 30 years, and he never went to a meeting, and, and he recovered, and, and he was fine. But the, the problem is, is that you'll hear people say, I can I can recover without going to meetings. They'll be in early recovery, and they'll, they'll be saying, I can do it without meetings. I don't need, I don't need meetings. And the potential problem with that, not the definite problem, but the potential problem with that is that the person is trying to do something that they're not likely able to do. And they're believing in that individualism and that I can do it on my own if I just have enough willpower. They call it white knuckling it. And this, according to many people in 12-step groups and AA and SAA groups, is stinking thinking, as they call it. It's bad thinking. It's wrong-headed and will lead to someone's destruction. But, you know, can can people recover without 12-step groups? Absolutely. It, it, it happens all the time. But I would say to someone that is resistant to 12-step, and this is what I do say to people that are resistant to 12-step meetings, is I say, well, it couldn't hurt, right? If you're really trying to recover from something and you've hit bottom and you really want to stop doing whatever it is that you want to stop doing, then it couldn't hurt to go to meetings or at least go to uh, like 10 or 20 meetings just just to get over the initial awkwardness. Because what I find is once people go a number of times, even if they're forced to go, eventually they find value in it and and they go to it. And the problem is, is that there's really nothing else. There's no alternative. There Again, I, I talked about other 12-step groups that don't involve God. And, and so I'm including those in this in this group of things that are available to people as well. But there's there's no alternative to 12-step groups. There's no, alter, there's no other thing out there that is absolutely free. So that's a wonderful thing about it. It's, it's completely free. They're all over town all the time. At any given moment, there's a 12-step group occurring at that moment, it's, it, unless it's like three in the morning, and, and then there probably isn't. But there are groups all over town, and, and you're free to go to any of them. Um, some of them are closed, is what they call, but most are, most are open to anybody. And I can't think of anything else that's really like that. I mean, think of, think about anything else in our society that is like that, where you could show up, it's free, you have no obligation, and no one will try to sell you anything. In fact, it's like strictly forbidden to try to sell you anything. So I just can't think of anything in our society that's like that. So if there was another thing, then I would be all over that. But it, it's the only thing where people come together anyway. And when I hear people that are resisting 12-step groups because of the religious aspect, I just tell them to ignore it. And I know that maybe AA people would hate me for that, but I just say, look, if, if you hate the God part of it and the higher power part of it, just ignore that part of it. <laughs> just don't, don't worry about it. Don't let a tiny detail in AA ruin the entire thing. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. The God part of it for most groups, in my experience, is a very small part of it. You, for instance, you could talk for, you could share for years and never mention your higher power and no one's going to say anything to you. But having said that, someone might say something to you because it's comprised of human beings and some people are assholes and they might be an asshole to you. So that, that's the other thing is just to think about is like you could go to a meeting and it could be filled with a bunch of assholes and it could be a horrible experience for you. That doesn't mean that 12-step groups are 
filled with assholes in general. It just means that that particular group that day happened to be filled with assholes. And so what I tell people is, is go to a wide variety of different meetings in different locations at different times and find the group that fits for you. For someone who's never been in recovery and probably one of the most staunchest advocates of, of 12-step groups. The other rant, I'll try to keep it short, that I want to have before talking about the movie is a sex addiction rant. And that is, is that some people say there is definitely something called sex addiction and it's real. And there are other people that say you can't be addicted to sex because sex is a normal biological urge and therefore you can't be addicted to it. And again, as I said earlier, it's a social constructed term and therefore it's defined socially. We define it socially. So I'll just say this. Are there people who exhibit sexual problematic behavior that very much looks like alcoholism? Yes, absolutely. There are people who will, you know, binge on sex They'll obsess on sex. They will use sex in a self-destructive way. They'll be obsessed with it. Some people will say sex addiction would be more accurately called obsessive compulsive disorder, and it just happens to manifest in sex, and I agree with that to some extent. Some people think of sex addiction, sex addiction as a disease in the same way that they consider alcoholism a disease. Some people think that neither one of those things are a disease, that hepatitis C is a disease, and and that you can't have a disease of behavior, but it all just depends on how you define disease. What the proponents of calling it a disease are referring to is that once you have it, you don't ever not have it. Meaning that if you stop drinking, that doesn't mean you don't have the potential of having a problem if you pick up the bottle again. It also, the disease model often refers to the fact that people can have a genetic disposition to addiction. And that has been proven through genetic research. So, you know, they consider it a genetic disease that you have. But again, it depends on how you define disease. And it always bothers me or gives me a chuckle when people have these arguments. You know, they say, addiction isn't a disease. And the other person says, it absolutely is a disease. How dare you say it's not a disease? And I just say, Look, people, we just have to define what disease is. And I'm, I'm guessing if you just defined disease, you know, to, you two people that are arguing, you would find that you have different definitions of disease. And therefore, if you define disease in one way, then yes, addiction is a disease. And if you define addiction, addiction or disease in another way, then anyway. So another term that is often used in lieu of sex addiction is hypersexual and there's some good research coming out around that. And it was almost in the DSM-5, which I was hoping it was, but it's not. So there are lots of different ways of talking about it. But, but the bottom line is that for some people, they are compulsive about sex and self-destructive about sex. It's not like they just really like sex. That's, that's not the definition of sex addiction. They will be obsessed with it and or they will use it as a self-medication for some other problem, you know, like... They suffered trauma, and so as a way of distracting themselves from that pain and that horror, they will act out sexually. That would result in someone probably being labeled as a sex addict. For whatever reason, some people are just potentially wired in a way that will compel behaviors and thoughts that will get them labeled as a sex addict. But basically, people who label themselves as sex addicts will have a past life where they thought about sex all the time. They might have masturbated five, ten times a day. They might have looked for prostitutes all night long. They might have been on the internet for 12, 16 hours a day. They might have lost all their relationships with people as a result. They might have incurred several diseases, HIV, hepatitis C, other STIs. They might have been very shameful and very distressed during these periods. They might have been in a kind of trance-like state where, you know, people that are that have eating disorders will often talk about, you know, the the bingers will talk about how they enter a trance-like state for a few days and they'll just eat and eat and eat for a few days and they won't actually be themselves. They'll be kind of depersonalized. People with sex addiction will talk about that. So it's it's not just like Tiger Woods who has sex with other people besides his wife. It, it's it's not a guy who 
can't keep it in his pants or, or someone who has a lot of sex. It's, it's, it's not, that's, that isn't what cl- clinicians or people who know what sex addiction is. Those are not sex addicts. Those are people making choices and they can make choices however they want to. And if their choices end up having them cheat on their spouses, then that's what their choices led them to. Might they be a sex addict? Yeah, they might be. But when you actually hear the stories of what we typically refer to as sex addicts, you will hear much, much more extreme stories from these people. And you will have no doubt that this person has a problem. You will not, there will be no debate from anyone in the room when you hear a story from a real sex addict that this person was addicted to sex or had some kind of massive problem. So the, the label of sex addict that gets thrown around the media uh, you know, for Tiger Woods and these people is, is really a joke. It gives the field of sex addiction a bad name, essentially. But anyway, all right, so that's my sex addiction rant. And as always, if you disagree with me, feel free to write me a concise, well thought out and unhostile, if that's a word, email to me. Uh, I would love to look that over. Okay. So I thought in the movie they depicted the sponsor-sponsee relationship very well. If you're not familiar, in 12-step groups, you eventually try to get a sponsor. You try to get someone who is further in recovery to sponsor you. It's basically like a, a big brother or a big sister. They're, they're sort of like a friend. Uh, they're sort of like a mentor. And they're supposed to be there when you need them. Sometimes you can have multiple sponsors, and that's fine. But um, it's highly recommended that you get a sponsor because it establishes a connection, you know, a personal connection with somebody, which can help in early recovery or throughout recovery. It's a person that you've agreed that you can call them really at any time when you need to. People often become very close in these relationships, and closeness and attachment definitely help in recovery, um, not being isolated, this kind of thing. And so the sponsor relationship is a very special one, and they depicted that pretty well. Mark Ruffalo, the main character, his sponsor is Tim Robbins, who is this older uh, person than Mark Ruffalo and, and Tim Robbins supposedly has been in recovery longer, and he is that appointed leader in the group, I think, if, if I remember right. And then they depict a young guy in recovery. He's a medical doctor, and he was caught doing something sexual to somebody. He, he likes to rub up against women in the subway, and he also likes to put cameras on his feet and look up skirts. And he got caught doing something and was court-ordered to go to Sex Addiction Anonymous. And so he's there unwillingly, and he doesn't really think he has a problem and doesn't want to re- recover, and he's only there to get his slip signed. So what, one of the things that people will do, I don't know if you know this, is that sometimes the court will actually order people to go to meetings. And in order to prove to the probation officer or, who, or whomever they have to report to that they've been to the meetings, they have to have someone in the meeting sign off that they've been there. And it's kind of like an honor system to some extent, because I don't think the probation officers actually check to see if the signatures are, are right or not. But it's just one way to try to get people to recover. Because if someone has some kind of problem with sex addiction, then one of the best ways to get them to stop committing those crimes is to get them to recover. And so the law and probation officers and the courts really understand the helpfulness of 12-step programs. But anyway, there's this young guy and he is in early recovery or he's not in recovery at all. He he doesn't really want to get better. He's just there to get his slip signed. And he's sort of cocky and he's not taking the meetings very seriously. And then they show him at home by himself. And it's kind of a difficult scene to watch. It, it's, it's sort of dealt with in a c- comedic way, but they show him in his normal pattern of sex addiction. Basically, he just stays home by himself, isolates, and he eats a lot of fattening food, donuts, and then he also masturbates frequently while watching porn on the internet. They show him doing it like three or four times. They show him bored and then He'll decide to masturbate or eat. So it's just an, an interesting look into one depiction of what the life and times of a sex addict is like. I didn't actually realize this until watching 
the film, but they actually use the same words of in AA as they do in SAA or Sex Addiction Anonymous. They use the word sober. So when someone hasn't sexually acted out for five years, they say that they've, they have five years sobriety, which is, I think, interesting and, and to some extent a little disorienting because it's like, Sober from what? Because you know the strictest definition of sobriety is that you're not intoxicated, right? It's not that you've refrained from sexually acting out. But I think it definitely helps to word things similarly to AA, mostly because AA just has a lot of history behind it, and they've worked out a lot of the kinks over the several decades of it being in in use. And so I think when these other groups came along, like Sex, Addic- Sex Addiction Anonymous, they just decided to adopt all that language as a way of of just shortcutting and and helping people uh, understand how to meet their goals. You know, there was an interesting scene when a young, attractive woman played by Pink arrives in the SAA meeting and starts talking about how she is obsessed with sex and will have sex with any man, anywhere, anytime. And she really doesn't want to do that anymore. And she's struggling a lot. As she's talking, they're showing the faces of some of the men in the SAA group. And you are led to believe that some of the men are having trouble with her in in the group, that they are being tempted to relapse by hitting on her and trying to have sex with her, or it's it's triggering feelings in themselves that will lead to them sexually acting out. So just an interesting little part in the movie. And they didn't really wrap that part up. They didn't, they, they just sort of exposed the audience to that reality that in SAA groups, there are at times men and women in the same group, and uh, many of them heterosexual. And therefore, the men, for instance, in this group might be getting turned on by listening to a woman talk about her sexual acting out and how this might create problems. Now, this, you know, of course, would be true in gay groups as well, where you might have gay men all in a group. And it's just an interesting question. I think a lot of people would say, well, maybe you should separate out the men and the women, and they shouldn't be together. Other people might say, well, they need to be in the same group together because they need to learn how to be with each other. These men need to learn how to listen to these stories and not sexually act out. Or they need to have a relationship with someone in recovery, you know, not a relationship relationship, but, you know, a, a friendship, so to speak, with someone who is in recovery that they would normally sexually act out with. But in this situation, they have the opportunity to learn a different pattern of behavior. So I don't know what the answer is, and I'm sure it depends on the individual, but it's just it was an interesting part of the movie. And and by the way, I, I've worked with clients that have gone to SAA and found that my clients benefited a lot from it. I have had clients who have come to me trying to recover from watching porn and masturbating. I, some of the men I've worked with have had full-blown sex addictions and have been masturbating a lot and looking at porn a lot. And they work with me and they also go to SAA. But I've also had some men that come to me that I would say are not addicted to sex, but have wives that really just do not want them looking at porn and really do not want them masturbating. And some would say that's unfair, but it's not up to us to tell people how to think and behave in this way. For instance, there's this one guy I worked with and he came to me and he said that he had this problem. And I, and so I explored it with him and I said, well, do you think you have a problem with masturbating? Or is it just that your wife thinks you have a problem? And so we explored that for a long time. And he had a number of conversations with her outside of the session about what we were talking about in therapy. And they, as a couple, decided that, yes, it definitely was a problem for her. And she could not tolerate it no matter how open-minded she tried to be. She just did not want him looking at porn. So he left alone would say that porn and masturbating was okay, but he decided to work with his wife on this and decided, okay, for you, I'm going to try to refrain from porn and masturbation. And so he went to SAA to do that. And his SAA group definitely helped him to stop. And he was able to refrain from masturbation and pornography use for several months. He would relapse now and then, but the group definitely helped. Coming to therapy once a week or once every other week was helpful as well, but without the SAA groups, I doubt he would have been able to 
refrain or to be sober, as they say. There's an interesting bit in the movie that I took notes on here. Gwyneth Paltrow, she emerges onto the scene and meets the Mark Ruffalo character, and they start dating. And Gwyneth Paltrow's character says at one point, she says, you're not an alcoholic, are you? Because my last boyfriend was an alcoholic, and I swore to myself I would never date another alcoholic. And you just see this look on Mark Ruffalo's face, and he's like, oh boy. Um, No, I'm not an alcoholic, he says. But you know that he's thinking, "But but I'm a different kind of addict, so I'm sort of telling the truth to you right now and telling you that I'm not an alcoholic, but I'm kind of lying to you in that I'm not telling you that I'm an addict nonetheless. So there was that little bit there. But the other bit that I thought was interesting is that the writers astutely portrayed the common reality that certain people are attracted to addicts. Even though they don't know someone's an addict, they can sort of sniff them out. (laughs) And it's very difficult to determine how this exactly happens. But you will find that some people will repeatedly date addicts, even though there was no overt signs of them being an addict when they first met them. Somehow they just pick up on the personality traits or the trappings of an addict, and they find themselves in in many different relationships with addicts. Usually these people, in my view, have internalized particular relationship situations in their childhood or in their early life that has compelled them toward people that are addicted as a way of trying to work out this old issue. I won't get into that whole detail as I have in other episodes, but there's there's reasons why this happens in my belief system. They depicted another part of recovery that is very common for people in that the young guy who is very reluctantly going to the SAA meetings, he eventually gets caught at work at the hospital where he's a doctor and he gets fired. He gets caught doing something to another doctor in a sexually inappropriate way and he, and he gets fired. And he hits bottom because the next meeting he goes to, he's very shameful and he's very ready to recover. He has had what some call a moment of clarity. So prior to that, he was just thinking, ah, I'm okay. Ah, I'm just a regular guy. Doesn't every guy masturbate five times a day? And isn't every guy obsessed with sex? I mean, come on, uh, everyone's like this. And then he gets caught and fired because of his sexually acting out. And he sees the light and he says, I can't be in denial anymore. I have a problem. I know it. And, and I, I've got to change this. And so he asks Mark Ruffalo to be a sponsor who tells him, you have to go to 90 and 90, as they say. So this is the recommendation to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Essentially, you go to a meeting every day for the first three months while you're in recovery. The idea here is that going to a meeting every day will help you to be sober. It'll help to bolster your motivation to be sober. Because in early recovery, it's very tempting to to fall off the wagon. And in order to solidify that sobriety, going to a lot of meetings is going to help that happen. It's very hard to relapse when you're going to a meeting every single day because you not only talk to sober people who are, you know, really have an interest in you being sober, but it also just kind of throws a wrench in behaviors sometimes, you know, like for drinkers anyway, they might drink after work. Well, if you have to go to a meeting at seven o'clock, you can't be drunk when you go to the meeting, or at least you don't want to be. And so even though you might be having a massive craving after work at five o'clock, you're thinking, well, I'm going to a meeting at seven, so no, I'm not going to drink. And then you go to the meeting and you talk to some people. And in 90 days, you get to know people eventually because you make friends because you're a naturally social person. And then you hang out with them after the meeting and they want to be sober and you want to be sober. Now, while I'm on the subject of that, sometimes people will say, well, if you go to NA, you're just going to meet other drug users and you're going to end up using. And certainly that is the case. There are some people that go to that go to meetings purely to meet other people who use so that they can use with them. They're not really interested in recovery and they're just going there because they want to find people to use with. And yeah, that happens. But that is not the majority of the people who go to these meetings. In fact, I would think it would be a small minority of people that would even do that. And if you're serious about recovery and you have a sponsor, then you will gravitate away from those people or you'll gravitate toward people who really want to be sober. And so it's not usually a problem from what I can tell. 
But anyway, his sponsor, Mark Gruffalo, also recommends to the young, recently fired doctor that he needs to not have the internet and he needs to not go on the subway and he needs to refrain from all the triggers that led to us sexually acting out. And the young guy says, really? No internet? What am I going to do? And no subway? How am I going to get around town? And the Mark Ruffle character says, are you serious about recovery? Are you serious about getting sober? And, you know, the young guy says, yeah, I am. Well, then this is what you're going to have to do. And this is a frequent conversation that I have with people in early recovery. One of the common things that comes up is, look, you're going to have to divorce your friends that use because if you're around your if you're around your friends that use it's going to be a trigger and it's going to make it hard to be sober people say oh no i'll just i'll just you know i'll sure i'll go to parties with those people but i won't drink even though everyone else is drinking or you know oh i don't you know i can handle it i can handle it and because you know naturally they don't want to give up their social life they they like these people and they they don't want to be alone but the fact is oftentimes is it's hard to attain sobriety while hanging out with people who use. And it's a hard sacrifice, but people just have to figure out where their priority is. So this was depicted well in the movie here, you know, where Mark Ruffalo is telling him, you can't go on the internet and you can't go on the subway because those are areas where you'll have a massive craving to act out. And there's no reason to subject yourself to that craving. An interesting part in the movie was that the Mark Ruffalo character goes on a business trip and he's staying in a hotel room and he asks the management of the hotel to take his TV out of his room, presumably because you can buy porn on the TV uh, at, at hotel rooms. And he must have had sexually acting out in regards to that in the past. And so when he arrives at the hotel, he calls the front desk and says, can you please remove the TV from my room? Now, this depicts that in order to recover, in order to stay sober, people have to exert sometimes a lot of control in their environment. You know, if you're an alcoholic, you don't go to bars or you don't go to activities that involve alcohol because you know that when you do that, there's a chance that you might end up using again and then you'll go down the path of using and you'll find yourself drinking every day. And so the Mark Ruffalo character is like, look, I could probably white knuckle it with that TV in my room or I could just call the front desk and tell them to get it out of, get it out of the room and then I won't have to white knuckle it. I won't be cra- I won't be tempted at all because it won't even be there. And that's one thing that you'll find that when people are really serious about recovery, they will do things like that. And when people are only towing with recovery, they're in early recovery, or they're still contemplating how serious they are about recovery, you'll find that they won't do those things. <laughs> I thought this was interesting. If you've watched The Wire, you remember the politician that would say, she, <laughs> it was just a funny character on, on The Wire. But anyway, I randomly saw him in two different movies this week. He was he was a small part in this movie. Thanks for sharing. He's an alcoholic in recovery, I think. And he was also in a movie I watched the other day called The Europa Report, which is this sort of like found footage movie about a future mission to the moon of Jupiter Europa that I actually thought was pretty good. But he's a random small character in that movie as well. So I just thought it was funny that I saw the oh shit guy from The Wire in two movies in two days. One thing that they depicted well, I thought, was the difficulty that the Mark Ruffalo character had when he started a romantic relationship for the first time since he started his recovery over five years. So the Mark Ruffalo character at the beginning of the movie has been sober for five years and he hasn't been, he hasn't had sex in that entire time. He hasn't had a relationship in that time. And his sponsor played by Tim Robbins actually starts off the movie by trying to pressure him to have a girlfriend, to have a romantic life. And he's like, man, you've been sober for five years. It's, it's time to get out there. You, you can you can be sober on a deserted island all you want, but you got to get out there. You got to live life. And Mark Ruffalo's like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll date someone. And he meets Gwyneth Paltrow, and they start to date, and they really get along, and they have like a very compatible personality life together. But when they start having sex, he often puts the brakes on having sex because he presumably doesn't want to go down a road of sex addiction again. He's trying to have sex in a normal way 
in a way that he perhaps has never done before. And he's very controlled about his life because he knows that if he lets go of his control, it opens the door to him going down a very destructive road. And so this frustrates Gwyneth Paltrow and makes her uh, have her feelings hurt because she'll say, hey, let's have sex and let's have sexy time. And Mark Ruffalo will be like, oh, I'm tired and um, I don't, I, I, I just want to slow down. I just want to slow down. And uh, she, she is hurt by that. And I just thought that they depicted it pretty well because they didn't really have in the film a, a good answer to that problem. There was really no way to solve that problem. Gwyneth Paltrow's character had a normal sexual desire and wanted to have sex with her boyfriend, whom she loved a lot. And Mark Ruffalo's character also wanted that, but didn't want to challenge his sobriety, so was playing it safe by putting on the brakes a lot. And there just was no way around that problem. The, you know, From the outside, if you're unfamiliar with sex addiction, you would say, come on, Mark Ruffalo, have sex with Gwyneth Paltrow. What's wrong with that? Just don't sexually act out. Well, it's, it's not as easy as that. Uh, it's, it's a very, you know, according to the way they're writing this character, Mark, Mark Ruffalo's character knew from experience that if he just went down that road, that he's, being, he's opening himself up to vulnerability. And to some extent, the movie even implied that Mark Ruffalo's character would never have a satisfactory sexual relationship with somebody because throughout the movie, it never got to that point where you're like, oh, he finally was able to have a normal sex life. No, he, he never has that in, in the movie. And it, to some extent, it, it could be the future Mark Ruffalo character might have to refrain from any sexual activity because any sexual activity might actually open the door to a life of self-destruction, which they showed later in the movie quite well. Spoiler, spoiler alert, Mark Ruffalo's character has a, has a relapse and you get to see how horrible his previous life was before he got sober. Another realistic part that I thought they depicted, I mean, it wasn't like ultra realistic, but I thought that they depicted something accurately to some extent was when the Mark Ruffalo character is in the midst of his relapse, he calls one of his ex-girlfriends and she comes over and they start to have a sexy role play. And it all just seems, you know, kind of on the edge of kinkiness, but it doesn't seem self-destructive in any way. It just seems like, oh, okay, well, here they go. They're going to play. They're going to have a role play, sexy, sort of like um, S&M kind of thing. And then it quickly takes a turn and it becomes extremely problematic uh, you know, I'll let you watch the movie, but the the scene turns from yeah, kinky, sexy time, kind of kind of weird to very depressing and, and upsetting. And I thought that they depicted this well because I think sometimes people might think, oh, sex addiction, it's all about like having sex all the time and how wonderful it is. And who doesn't like to have sex all the time? Ooh, how, how sexy sex addiction must be. That is not what sex addiction is like. When you talk to real sex addicts, they will say, there is nothing sexy about sex addiction. It's a lot of difficult emotions. It's a lot of dealing with people that have big emotional problems. It's a lot of getting into situations where you feel scared and unsafe. It's it's a lot of shame and self-shame and regret and guilt and and just a lot of negativity. And so I just thought that they depicted that well enough anyway for being a comedy, if that makes I mean, you know, it's hard to really switch into super depressing in a sort of comedy drama. The the movie Shame, again, with Michael Fassbender, is a, a, a much more depressing look at sex addiction. But to some extent, it kind of glorifies sex addiction in that movie. But also, it, it absolutely does not glorify it. So it's a very intense scene for Mark Ruffalo and this other actress. And I was listening to the director's commentary and the director said we did this scene several times and 
we used the last one that we shot. And after we shot this one, I, as the director, went up to Mark Ruffalo and said, okay, well, let's, let's just do one more, one more time. And Mark Ruffalo said, no, we're not doing it another time. That one was good enough. Because I, presumably because Mark Ruffalo was like, I can't do this again. It's too hard on me. It's, it's too difficult of material to act over and over again. I, I want to be done. So can we please just move on? <laughs> because I don't want to do it anymore. So in conclusion, I would say it was a good movie. It's it's definitely watchable. I actually gave it an 8 out of 10, which is a very high rating for me. I Normally, if, if a movie is watchable and I consider it to be, you know, basically entertaining but not great, I'll give it a 5. So an 8, you know, I, I gave it a pretty high rating. Um, it has a heartwarming ending. It's sort of bittersweet to some extent, but there's definitely a heartwarming part to it at the end. But really what I loved about the movie is it really shows the humanness of the characters. You really get to know these people and you get to see the full person in each of them. It's difficult sometimes to do that in an hour and a half, but I, I feel like they, they pulled that off pretty well. You know, you really got to see how what recovery looks like, how it's work, definitely, but it's also, you know, fun to some extent and, you know, uh, uplifting. It can be depressing and frustrating at times, but it can also involve being with other people in recovery and feeling together and feeling very warm with each other. So it's not all about just restricting yourself from something that is fun. It, it can also involve a lot of fun times, a lot of warmth and togetherness with other people in recovery. And you really get the sense that when these people are sober, that their life is so much better. I mean, you really clearly see that sobriety is a better way for them to live. And for people that don't know addiction, this is something that I think they need to learn because a lot of times people say, well, you know, what's wrong with having a drink now and then? I don't know. What's, or what's wrong with having sex now and then? Or they'll, or they'll say, why can't they just stop doing that? I mean, what's, what's wrong? But, you know, in this movie, I think you, you get to see why that happens. Or at least I think you do. But anyway, thought it was good. Again, thanks for sharing. Movie from 2012. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself. You can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or you can go to our website at psychologyinseattle.com and go to the uh, contact us page and send us an email. If you could, please, you could like us on Facebook. That, that's always nice. Or you can follow us on Twitter or you can go to our website and look around. Or what we really like is when you donate. That's always our favorite is when you go to psychologyinseattle.com and you donate. All right. Well, thanks for joining me. And goodbye.